Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan, read the paper. It's May, the lusty month of oh, lusty May. Month of May. <laughs> yeah. May 3rd, Sunday, 2020. It's a nice day. How about that? It's a sunny day. Well, and warm. It's sunny uh, right now. Okay, it's and sunny it's, now. And it's like the mid 70s. Yeah, it's don't, delightful. Don't knock it. Yes. Know? We haven't had it for a while. We're not going to have it again for a while. But really? Yeah. Always the optimist. Well, it's the way it is. But uh, yesterday was nice, too. And I think it's going to be all right this week. The weather can only improve. Um, now we're giving weather reports. <laughs> <laughs> People want to know the weather from a few days ago. It's, it's, okay. uh, it's uncovered uh, territory. All right. Tune in here. All right. And get uh, something not very current. Not, not very current. Well, in any event... Um, yeah. So here's something we've been watching that uh, we thought people might be interested in. Uh, again, Japanese, because that's what we do. We watch Japanese television. Well, Dan is being a little ironic here. Why? We, well, we actually, oddly enough, are not that uh, Asian-centric. Well, it, this, okay? it is Zeke's birthday this week, so I think... Right, that but, but that's the beauty of it. Um, you know, we weren't naturally drawn to, uh, uh, what's it called... Giri Haji, yeah, or or Midnight Diner. Well, yes, uh, we lucked into them, and uh, well, I found them. I found engaged. them. Engaged, yes. we're obsessed. Well, you know, it just shows you don't know what you like. Well, we mentioned Giri Haji uh, last week, which is a great suspense thriller. Midnight Diner is not that. Midnight Night Diner is this kind of quirky twenty to twenty-five minute show, uh, which takes place in a diner. That's open from midnight to seven uh, every day, and uh, the guy who runs a diner, who's a very solid citizen, and you know, it's the kind he of like a bartender type. About him. He seems like a very reputable guy. Well, uh, he's wonderful, but it, it it tells little vignettes, little people, stories, stories of the people who come into the diner, right. and there are some you know regulars, right? But the stories are usually completely unrelated, right? Okay. It's amazing. Some new subject pool. The variety of people come to this diner are amazing. And the story, you are, there are some regulars, but they're like the Greek chorus. They sit on the side of the diner and they react to whatever the new people have to say or have to deal with. Right. Uh, and the stories are varied. Some are sort of heartwarming little stories of romance. Some are kind of uh, a little bit the opposite. I don't know exactly how to describe them, but which is a part of what's good about Midnight Diner. It's not entirely predictable. It's got a nice tone to it. Uh, the, the diner seems real. The food seems appealing. They, they make a point of giving you a recipe every week. We watch them prepare <laughs> That's true. Uh, something in a wok, and you say to yourself, I, we should have that for dinner tomorrow night. You know, So it appeals on various levels. It's a, can we call it a short bite? Uh, but uh, I think uh, it's fun. It's, it's a nice thing to watch in the evening. Midnight yeah, diner. Yeah, it's not hilarious or anything. It's, no. Uh, like you said, sometimes it's heartwarming. How do you like uh, subtitles? You... I think the subtitles are fine. My Japanese is so rusty that I find myself relying on the subtitles. How about you? Well, the thing is with me and subtitles is I forget I'm even reading subtitles. Well, and so by the end of it, I just assume... I am now understanding Japanese. <laughs> okay. I didn't say this. I'm always saying, like, can you turn up the volume a little bit? I'm not, uh, I don't think I'm quite getting it. Uh, yeah, it's the same idea. But the one thing I would mention about Midnight Diner is even if you find an episode that doesn't appeal to you, watch the next one. Because uh, they're not all that same. They're not that predictable. Uh, and that's what makes it appealing in some respects. And I think you just have to kind of 
relax yeah. and go with the flow. Right. And yeah. because it, it is a different format. It's midnight in Tokyo. Yeah. And there's a, just a whole, it is a wonderful change of atmosphere. Yeah. And uh, context. And it's nice to step out of your world for a while and have something completely different, even if it's wacky. Um, so we saw another movie this week, which I'll just say something about, and I'll give you your chance because I know it didn't appeal to you as much as to me. And that was uh, Passion Fish, which is a movie that was made in 1992, uh, starring uh, Mary McDonnell, who a lot of people know from Battlestar Galactica. Uh, and uh, Alfre Woodard was in a zillion things, including St. Elsewhere, going way back, and uh, David Straithorn, who you'll remember, Tamsin, from Good Night uh, and Good Luck, in which he played uh, Edwin R. Murrow, quite a different part than what he has here. Nice cast, but uh, also uh, significantly directed by John Sayles. It's a John Sayles movie, and John Sayles was sort of a counterculture director uh, in the 80s and 90s, starting with the return of the Secaucus 7 and Madawan and Lone Star and movies like that. And it was a small miracle that he ever got his, his movies made. He would do better in these times because it's easier to have a smaller movie that's just digital and just goes to the Montgomery Theater or something. But he managed to get his films made. And they're kind of languorous. They're slower paced. Uh, and uh, I found the characters very affecting. It's not a completely novel story. But uh, it does uh, get it. It's a very quiet story that uh, in which they investigate the situation of a woman who's now bound to a wheelchair. Uh, she develops a relationship with uh, the woman who's her nurse is going to help her. And the fact with the community around her, which she had a difficult time relating to, certainly before she got hurt. So that may sound a little stock. And I think that's the way it struck you. Get these things. Yeah, this movie. I mean, seriously, how did you, how did you Roger this? Ebert thought this was one of the top ten movies of the year in 1992. And uh, what what what? Why did you choose 1992? No, I just was read what he said about it. I will also tell you, you'll be curious. Well, how did you come up? with Mary it? McDonnell was how nominated. Did you come up Mary McDonnell was nominated for Best Actress. How in, did you in the come Academy up with Awards? It? Uh, Roger Ebert. I, I trust Robert Ebert's passed away. I feel funny keeping mentioning his name, but there's a site that collects his various reviews, and there are people who review in his tradition, and I like Roger Ebert's taste. So but, you look up for, like, a list of his best I, I stuff? I do all kinds of things. I can't give it away here in front of all these people. Yeah, but, I thought it was boring, uh-huh. and um, I did not... What was there about the main character that was engaging at all? Uh, it, you have to at least be it, interested. It's the relationship. Oh, look, oh, look. I mean, she's, she's just sitting there drinking and watching TV. Yeah, well, but you know, you had to look. In fairness, Tamsin, you were a little tired, so I don't think you were up for that yeah, movie. No, that's not fair. No, that's not fair at all. No. Okay. You think you gave the movie a fair look, shot? <laughs> yes, okay. I do. All right. Why did I fall asleep during the movie? Because it was boring. <laughs> all right. Okay. All right. Um, this is the thing, Dan. Yeah. You know. You should at least allow for people to have differing opinions. I certainly do. Okay? You're allowed. You can't just say um, you didn't like the movie, so you're wrong. I, you just you, I, you I, didn't, I, I didn't say that. You know, I didn't say that's that. what you said. No, no, that's what you didn't give it a fair shot. You know, I, I gave it a fair shot. It wasn't interesting to me. It seemed like kind of a all right, right. fancified uh, Hallmark movie, mm-hmm. and um, you know. All right. It was all very. What can nice. I say? I like it John just, Sales. Uh, do you yeah, remember? That's the thing. Do you, you remember? Just, see, this is the thing. Yeah. You saying to yourself, "This is a John Sales movie, so it's good." Yeah. And that's your frame of mind, yeah. and you're going to like it. Well, okay? he didn't make many movies. That you know what? Uh, you know, um, 
can I say my mother hasn't painted many paintings? <laughs> you know, that doesn't mean that I, you know, it, she's going to be a great painter. Do you remember because seeing only three? Do you remember the, the, the John Sales movie we saw years ago? No. I think we only, okay. Lone Star. Uh, in case you're wondering. Don't put me on the spot or anything. I, well, I thought you might Look, remember. I, I, I think you were prejudiced in favor of this all right, movie. All right. And uh, I, I, didn't I, see it with clear eyes. I, I, we had technical if difficulties. I came to you and said, the girls in the book club think yeah. this is a swell movie. Yeah. And turned it on. Yeah. You wouldn't have given it five minutes. Uh, no. uh, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but we had technical difficulties, too. We should mention that. And that, that may have interfered with enjoyment of it. Um, so we have, we have a split split well, opinions on that. Technical difficulties. As Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert often had split opinions on things, so it's, it's perfectly allowable. Yes. Yeah, so right. so embrace that. I'm embracing. Stop, stop criticizing my taste. I'm not as criticizing ignorance. it. I, did yes. I say I didn't say anything like that? That's exactly what you said. Oh, that's you what you're thinking. No, no, that's what I'm thinking. You just didn't it's, get it's it. It's always the problem. I got it. I don't want it. My problem is I'm too transparent. You know what I'm thinking. That's what that's what it is. Um, okay. So the Kentucky Derby is the first uh, oh, Saturday in May. Kentucky Derby. And the first Saturday in May was yesterday, no May second. What are we going to do with all the there was no mint? Well, but there's an easy thing to do, Damson. Let's remember, let's think about last year's Kentucky Derby. What do you remember about that? Zero. Okay, so let me bring back your memory on that because there's been some interesting developments. That was the, the Kentucky Derby race. First of all, was it live or virtual? It was live. Ooh, those <laughs> were the days. The first, the horse that won that race, at least so it seemed at the time, was a horse called Maximum Security, who finished Did first. Did have any money on it? No. But uh, but in any event, Maxim. Had you picked it? Uh, I might have. I tend tend to pick these things. So Maxim Security came in first, right? You know that's not what I've heard. Usually you pick the loser. Hampson, back me up here, Armand. <laughs> My point is, Maxim Security finished first, and then all hell broke loose because a foul was claimed by a couple of horses that Maxim Security had sort of clipped as he went down the home stretch. Oh, I remember that. And then there was this awkward period in which they um, challenged it. And the question was whether Maxim Security would be placed down, disqualified, if you will. And everyone said, well, that will never happen. It's the Kentucky Derby. You don't do that in this kind of race. It doesn't look like such a horrible foul. And we watched it a thousand times. You'll recall it was a muddy track, trouble controlling the horse, et cetera, et cetera. Long story short... He was taken down. He was disqualified. Yeah. And the horses that he bothered actually moved back in the pack. So the horse that was declared the winner was the horse that was really like middle, going middling sort of fourth when all this was going on. But he didn't get involved in any of this scrum. And then he crossed the line as a horse named Country House, who was 65 to 1, the longest of long shots. He wasn't even in the first group. When all this was going on, he was declared the winner. Country House became the winner of the Kentucky Derby. And people went nuts, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, what happened since? What happened since was uh, highly controversial. Uh, Maximum security, uh, the owner was mad. The trainer was mad. Uh, The trainer was a guy named Jason Service, who people even said at the time, are they taking something away from service? You may even remember he was interviewed in real time saying and looking just a little tense about whether he would be taken down. And he seemed like a likable guy. And people observed he was, he was kind of unpopular. He's kind of a disliked trainer. And sure enough, they took him down. Uh, 
the owner of Maximum Security sued Kentucky to try to get it reversed, and of course that failed. So um, Maximum Security doesn't run in the other uh, Triple Crown races, but runs in other races for three-year-olds following the Triple Crown, and he wins, and he wins several races, including uh, the Florida Derby, the Haskell. These are big races, the Cigar Mile. And at the end of the year, he is voted in what's called the Eclipse Awards, which are the Academy Awards for Horses, if you will, the top three-year-old in the country, notwithstanding that he was disqualified at the Kentucky Derby. All right? So you say, well, he redeemed himself. Everything's cool. The trainer's redeemed, etc. Not exactly. He continues to race. And in March 2020, um, well, I should say first in February 2020, he runs a race in Saudi Arabia in Riyadh. Uh, and he wins a very big race there. And then a few weeks later, uh, they announce that uh, the trainer, Jason Service, is being accused in court of using illegal doping on his horses. All right. And there's evidence that he's illegally doped maximum security. All right. Now, these are huge allegations in the racing industry. So what happens now? What happens now is they, there's a, a movement about possibly taking away the Eclipse Award. They're holding up the purse in the Saudi race to see what they're going to say about this. And Jason Service might be going to jail, and they've taken the horse and put it to a new trainer. So that horse may be out of business. That whole operation may be out of business. And maybe he was on illegal drugs when he ran that derby, disputed derby to begin with. So that's totally. So now you would, don't feel so bad. Uh, maybe, but so you say. Well, how did Country House do? <laughs> Country House was the winner. He was sixty-five to one. What happened to them? Well, he was fine for a couple of days after he won the Derby. Then he and developed. Then he started taking drugs. <laughs> he should have. He developed a cough and whatever. And they said, "Ah, we're not going to run him in the Preakness." And then he developed sort of a sore foot. And they said, "Ah, oh, we're not going to run him in the Beaumont." And then he developed something else. Something else. It turns out he didn't run in any other Triple Crown race. Country House. Mm-hmm. He didn't run in any other race ever. Uh, and he didn't run any training runs because of one malady after another. And a few months, weeks ago, they retired him. He never ran a single thing after the Kentucky Derby that he was declared the winner on. And he is now, in the words of Morning McGee, reporter for the Daily Racing Forum, history will surely judge him as one of the worst Derby winners ever. He was unqualified going in and he's unqualified going out. So there you go. It's a complete mess. This is complete mess. And this would have been all displayed to the public if we had a derby this year, but it wasn't. So I was happy to catch you up on that. Yeah. So glad you did. Yeah. All right. And uh, I just, yeah, uh, just to go on to something else. I'll oh, change the subject quickly. No, I was going to say something about basketball. How did, how did the guy who came in third do? <laughs> <laughs> Making, ton, you know, billions uh, as a. Uh, the last dance. Or something? Talk about programs you're not okay. interested in. The Last Dance, which is the um, show about the Chicago Bulls, Michael Jordan, the Chicago Bulls, uh, which everyone in the country is watching except Thames and Granger, and Ken Burns. Ken Burns, the the great documentary maker, including of a baseball series and uh, jazz series and all kinds of things for Channel 13, Civil War, right? He has come out very much against The Last Dance. He says it doesn't have the integrity that it ought to have as a documentary because it involves the participation, if not the consent, of Michael Jordan, and therefore it's sullied by possible prejudice. It's a slightly slanted view. It's open to being manipulated by the guys the subject of the documentary. That's not the way history 
is is should be properly described. Right. And the short answer is, this is not history. It's just basketball. It's fun <laughs> to see Michael Jordan talk. Even if we say he's making stuff up, he's kidding around, he's making light, he's selling us on something, he's kind of winking us what he's talking. That's that's called, cool. you know what that's called? That's called cool. television. It's television. But here's so, the weird thing. Yeah. I mean, you, you watch it now and you watch it from a certain informed position. Right. Because uh, you, you're familiar with his right. whole career. Right. And uh, all of the context. But, you know, when some kid watches it uh, 30 years from now, right. aren't they going to have an entirely different... Uh, um, maybe, maybe. Do you think anyone's going to watch this 30 years from now? I don't know. They might. You know, somebody might watch, you know, you're doing a report on Michael Jordan. You know something? And you look at the, when it comes to the Michael's... documentary, and you don't know he's winking. You know, you know, you know he's winking. But you know you something? Know? You, know what... you know his tongue is in his cheek when he says this or that. It, it's not what he but, says. Um, it's what he did. And and the thing that's most compelling in that that show are the clips of him actually playing, and that's gonna that's the thing people are gonna okay. look at thirty years from now, and uh, the camera doesn't lie, so there you go. So what? Why do you think uh, Burns speaks? Because it's not his. <laughs> it's one subject. It's professional jealousy. Didn't get into. As Granger said earlier, it's easy to make the stuff about the Civil War and say, you know, I didn't let the people involved in the event pressure me at all in terms of putting this on, because they've been dead for a hundred years. So he's a little holier than now on this subject. Okay. All right. So what's selling and what's not selling in the pandemic, Thames? And that's what you need to know. Oh, well, you know, that's kind of interesting because that's been, uh, you know, it's shopping is kind of uh, a difficult thing. It's off the days. hook, off yeah, the hook, yeah, to coin yeah. a phrase. So, so in some places going up, some places going down. And um, so let's see, what do we have here? Um, people have stopped buying clothes. Yeah, well, okay, but, but they have them. You make it sound like they're walking around naked. They have them in the closet. No, no, yes. no, no, yeah, no. People have nowhere to go, so you don't need any new clothes. Yeah. So you're not shopping well, around. Well, listen, I have to keep up with any fashions because no one's seen I'm fashion. getting emails from Nordstrom, 60% off, you know, whatever. Yeah. Not interested. Not in the mood. Okay. Um, but what people are buying, yeah. you know, they're not buying going out clothes, yeah. but they're buying staying at home clothes. Yeah. Uh, um, sweatshirts. Mm. pajamas, things mm. like that. All spending has gone down. Even spending on sweatshirts and pajamas has gone down, but not as much as on what evening gowns or whatever. There's no Met Gala this year, mm. so you don't have to get dressed up right. on uh, Monday night. Right. Don't worry about that. Um, so uh, so there you have that. Of course, there's been sharp declines in hotel yeah. stays, right? Um, but there have been increases uh, in general merchandise stores. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, where you need miscellaneous things. Like Target? Uh, I guess so. I don't yeah. Know. Um, gun and ammunition yeah, shops. Yeah, well, that's, I've heard that. Yeah. And marijuana suppliers. Well, that, that's a good development. So people are buying that stuff. That's a positive okay. thing. Grocery sales in stores yeah. nearly doubled. Wow. In the first uh, couple weeks of March. Um, but uh, now they, you know, the buying frenzy has kind of receded. A bit, I, you know. I don't truly know about that, uh, but uh, I guess it has um, the hoarding boom. This article says this is in the Wall Street Journal, by the way. Faded the hoarding boom, right? Faded in late March, early April. I don't see how it's possible because no, there's still that's clearly no wrong. paper towels or that's, toilet paper yeah, in most of the stores yeah. around here. Yeah. Um, but uh, foot traffic. At uh, stores like 
Whole Food and um, Trader Joe's. Yeah. They say has gone down. Really? Yeah. I mean, we, we drove by a Trader Joe's the other day, and there was a long line of people waiting. But that's to because get in. they're restricting the number of people in the store, so it, yeah. it still could be going down. Yeah. Um, and so, as I said, to some extent, the grocery store um, frenzy has receded a bit too, but not uh, as but, much but also, as the the bigger stores. But there are some stores like Whole Foods where you can order something and they have for pickup and that's not foot traffic but it's still right. sales right? online sales have surged yeah um and at the same time the in-store things fell yeah. and then it turned all to okay. online so it's like three times wow. uh what it was a year earlier in the right. first uh couple weeks of april well it would be even more because i understand a lot of stores including whole foods are not accepting new online customers yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of... They could sell everything uh, you know, online. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, I mean, it's just uh, amazing. Um, well, that's something that could last, you know, something. You know, uh, the idea of doing groceries online, people may... They could staff up and they Amazon could distribute that in a different I way. I read that everywhere. Yeah. I mean, we used to ask ourselves, why don't your parents just order food online? Right. Because they don't have good grocery stores around yeah. them and it was a pain in the butt but, to get some. And the answer was because they're not on the internet. But, right. Yes. Um, but, but it clearly is a, a great convenience. Yeah. And if, uh, if you've got a family yeah. and everybody's working... You know, why spend the time think, going to the store? I think that's one thing. That, you could just check off that will the Cheerios, hang, the hang SpaghettiOs. On. I think you're going to see more of that. Yeah. So that, you know, yeah. it'll be interesting to see how, um, what kind of things are lasting changes. But um, back to what else is selling. Because of the new, you know, necessity for the home office, yeah. printer sales oh. have gone up. Right. I don't know exactly how that follows, but. Uh, yeah, I can see it. I can see it. Um, because you got to scan documents, too. It's not just about printing documents. But why, yeah, but I mean, but you you see them online. So what what exactly are you printing? I, I don't know, but there's stuff that's printed. Printing stuff letters to, say, to send to somebody? I don't I, know. Okay, anyway, um, moving right along here. Uh, also, um, space heaters. Mm-hmm. Because people have converted rooms that they don't usually use. Maybe right. it's in the basement or... You know, uh, that uh, back, you know, semi-insulated porch, whatever like that. Um, well, then you'll see dehumidifiers and air conditioners. In terms of alcohol, yeah, they say it's a 17-fold surge wow. in the week between April 9 and 15 compared Good. with a year Good. Uh, before. Well, that's up with the marijuana right. stuff. And there yeah. was a very big surge in orders for one particular beer, Corona Beer. I get it, coronavirus, I get it. beer. It still seems weird, but okay. Okay, uh, really surged for a while. That seems to have leveled off. <coughs> um, uh, people are making cocktails. So liquor has gone up. Okay. Liquor uh, it used to be way below wine. It's now, oh, wine really? is kind of reser- re, um, receded. And uh, liquor's up and also garnishes bitters and syrups mm. so people are making cocktails, cocktails yeah. something okay. to do yeah um also bread makers mm. yeah. in a surge and waffle makers i think yeah um and uh what else no what are people doing what online gaming oh yeah okay sales of uh for online gaming uh, have uh, searched just like you know we talked about jigsaw puzzles and board games right, right. Uh, before so that's where the excitement is plus of course 
the Victory Garden. We mentioned this before. Yeah. People are now growing their own vegetables. Well, that's good. Uh, well, it's good if they understand they're not going to turn into vegetables for quite a while. Yeah. Okay. You know, it's not instantaneous. Um, but uh, yeah, tomato seeds, peppers, squash, and beans seem to be the most popular. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, people are, are doing a lot of projects around the house. Mm-hmm. DIY. Mm-hmm. So um, things that you buy at the hardware store and the Home Depot have gone up. There's, there's a guy quoted as saying, I've never seen so many tree houses being built in my <laughs> That's life. That's what we need. We need a you country. Totally, you totally see that, right? You're country, trying to keep the kids right. amused, entertained, and get them out of the house. Well, so build them their own house. The country needs more tree houses. Uh, good. That's a good development. Um, I, I would have thought that modern parents wouldn't be into tree houses. No. Doesn't it seem dangerous? It does. But if, if you build it right, I'm sure it's okay. Or I don't know. I don't know because it's still, I, they you got the still wrong guy. over the side. I thought it would be dangerous if one of our kids went to a treehouse built by me. I would uh, easily concede that. So we, we avoided that. Uh, it would fall down before they could get up. That's probably don't right. Worry, don't worry about that. So here's a law story. We haven't had enough legal stories. So here's something. Uh, it's about Victoria's Secret, too, so it's kind of a sexy law story, I suppose. Victoria- aren't all law stories really sexy when you get down? Oh, I thought you were going to say, aren't they all about Victoria's Secret when you get down with it? Is that, too? Victoria's Secret was sold. It was sold uh, in, uh, in the early part of this year, February and March, to a company called Sycamore Partners uh, for $525 million. Now, Victoria's Secret, uh, owned by L Brands, was... Um, had problems because uh, there was uh, the Jeffrey Epstein stuff. There was some questionable uh, activities associated with Victoria's Secret. Also, time had passed it by. They'd, whatever it is, it, it truly is not what it's... You it, can buy nice underwear a lot of other places now. Okay, so okay. $525 million would consider it sort of a bargain price considering what it was once worth. Okay. So Sycamore uh, is the company that goes to buy it. And they go to buy it. They make a contract on February uh, 20th. And uh, what's interesting about that contract is, uh, number one, it was a day after the stock market hit its all-time high. Uh, Everything was copacetic. Things were chugging along. And when you make a contract for a sale of a business like that, you have a clause in the contract which says no material adverse changes will have occurred between the date of the contract and the date of the closing, which is usually a few weeks later. Okay? Uh, So they're all getting ready to do the closing. And um, the pandemic hits. Right. And uh, the company that's buying it, Sycamore, says, um, gee, things have really changed remarkably since we did it before, material adverse change. Uh, We want out of the contract. Yeah. Uh, Here's the problem, that in negotiating the contract, the law firm that uh, represented um, the seller, uh, L Brands, stuck in a clause in in the material adverse change provision that says, uh, yes, material adverse change is an out, but material adverse change will not include a pandemic. They actually negotiated that on February 20th, and they stuck that in. Now, that's totally an unusual clause, all right? So who stuck that in? I'll give you the firms, Davis Polk. They were on the ball. As I say in the article, here's a law firm that earned its money. they really have any idea? They're not quoted in the article, but obviously they had an idea. No one just pulls that out of the air. 
February 20th, they stuck in an so anti-pandemic clause. So people February 20th? Davis Polk was. Listen, wow. I hate to uh, praise a competitor. Wow. But, uh, I they mean... They sound like some smart cookies. Don't go crazy here. But uh, Kirkland and Ellis, a big firm on the other side, it's not clear they pushed back on it or not. They may have said, yeah, yeah, fine, fine, whatever you want. Or they may have argued about it. We don't know. But it ended up in the contract. I doubt they argued about it. So now, uh, Sycamore... Kirkland Ellis has actually brought a lawsuit saying they should be let out of the contract, you know, on the theory that, you know, they're running their business in a very different way now. Well, obviously, what the judge is going to say, they're doing that because of the pandemic. You have this pandemic. And I don't want to decide the case for the judge, but it seems like it's a pretty easy case. Uh, so is that weird or what? That's the lawyering award of the, of the spring, I think, goes to Davis wow, Polk there. Wow, Davis Polk. Yeah. So now it uh, looks like they'll have to Good go through on it. you, So Victoria's Secret is going to be uh, changing hands whether the new buyer wants them or not. All right. I told you it was an exciting law story. I don't say it's exciting. It's That's... just uh, just uh, kind of an amazing... It's remarkable. Yeah. Those lawyers are amazing. Either, you know, sometimes people's paranoia really yeah. pays off. Yes, yes. Um, banned books. Right, banned books. Banned books report. Always a, f- a fun topic. <laughs> in, in Alaska, in this case. In Alaska. So, an Alaska school board voted last week to remove five books. It's from an article in the New York Times, um, including uh, Maya Angelou's... Uh, the Cage Bird Sings. I know why the Cage Bird Sings. sings right. The Great Gatsby right. um, by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Uh, Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. Catch-22 by Joseph Heller. The Things They Carried by Tim O'Brien. Right. And uh, basically they said they're, you know, they're, this is the school board. Right. right? The district school board. This, they took they're it. saying that these things, yeah. uh, these books, raise concerns about language, sexual references, um... And uh, they were inappropriate because of mentions of rape, incest, racial slurs, profanity, and misogyny. Yeah. Um, and so uh, they were voting to uh, take them out. But they took them out of the curriculum. Of the curriculum. Of the curriculum. They took them off okay. the reading list. Although the logic was kind of interesting to me. And it's kind of superficially appealing, but it's not right. They, they said, well, look, if you read one of these books out loud or passages of some of these books out loud. Yeah, one guy stands up and says, if I read this out loud... You would, uh, you know, chastise me immediately. Right. Not only that, but if I read this at work out loud, uh, they would send me over to um... for sensitivity training, or, yeah, or, or yeah. worse, or you'd be fired, right? Because it's totally inappropriate, and that that in his mind was the test. If you can't read it out loud to a large group, then how could the kids be reading? Right, it? which is so crazy, out of context, uh, right? You know, whatever. But that's why I said it's superficial. You can sort of see somebody saying that, even though I tend to agree and it doesn't said make they're, sense. They're still going to be in the library, All right? You can read them, right. you can talk about them, you can write about them, but they're not on the reading list. And, you know, n- not everybody was for this. Um, and, uh, you know, one, uh, the board's clerk actually objected and said, you know, I, I kind of noticed that today's kids don't have much, you know, really lack critical thinking. Yeah. If you're not going to give them anything um, worthy of discussion, how are they going to ever form? Any uh, skills in that area? Mm-hmm. Okay, um, but anyway, uh, they they pass this. The American Library is upset and everything. But uh, you know uh, what really the um, what happened? The gist 
(laughs) the rest of the story. Well, what happened was that they, uh, somebody, first of all, started some program encouraging the kids to read these books. But even beyond that, uh, the books remained available for anybody who wanted to buy them. And guess what happened at the local bookstore? They are sold out. (laughs) Hundreds of orders for more. As soon as you ban a book, it's uh, it becomes highly desirable and it goes to the top know, of the it's list. Like, it's like it's 1957, isn't it? But that <laughs> used to happen, that happened in the late 1800s. You yeah. know, when, you know, the well, Henry Miller books. Yeah. You know, it's crazy. D. H. Lawrence books. As soon as you banned them, James Joyce. As soon as those books were banned, sold out. That's the clearest way to sell something out. Or even the 1900s. Yeah. What did I say? 1800s. Well, late 1800s. But in any event, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, my point is that that gets people going. There yeah. is no better way to, to sell something than uh, say it's banned. So, you know, again, good on you, Alaska. <laughs> right on top of things. Getting people back to the classics, no matter if they're controversial. That's the way to do it. We're going to try that at classic stage. It's something the stuff is banned. Banned performance. Um, Harlan Sfari died. Harlan Sfari, I, I remember when I was a kid reading some book, you know, as an eight-year-old about the NFL, they used to have information in books then, as opposed to newspapers or online to read about the NFL. And all the players on the Giants, and Harlan Swarry was a linebacker. And uh, it's a name that sort of struck you, was uh, unique, and you would remember it. Uh, and he played next to Sam Huff, who was quite famous. And the Giants were a very successful team. Frank Gifford was on that team. And what Frank Gifford said about Harlan Swarry, who at six feet tall and 215 pounds, was small even then for a linebacker. He said, Swarry did not have a muscle in his body. <laughs> but he possessed remarkable intensity and he was a smart guy. Mm. Uh, so smart that uh, after his career ended and he did a little assistant coaching, he was named the head coach uh, of the uh, Los Angeles Rams at the age of 31. Wow. And, you know, it's funny. There's been a, a movement in the NFL recently with a couple of young coaches, uh, Lane Kiffin, Sean McVay is the one that people talk about now who was uh, made a head coach one month shy of his 31st birthday. Uh, and like there's a movement to younger coaches. So this guy became a coach in 1962 at the age of 31. That was a record for the youngest coach. And it stood for, let me do some math, 55 seasons or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, except uh, he was terribly unsuccessful as a young coach. He, uh, and he freely admitted. That's why it stood for 55 <laughs> seasons. Said, I didn't oh, think about that. We don't want to make yeah. the Harlan Suarez. So when he was older, he was asked. About, I mean, he got several jobs and he always failed. His team's never won games. And here's how he explained it. He said, I know I was old enough to 31 to handle the football problems, but I also know that I didn't handle people well. I was immature. I was inconsistent. Nobody likes to be criticized, but unless their faults are pointed out to them every time, football players just don't develop. Asked how he should have behaved, he said, quote, I'd be a tough guy with a warm heart. Hmm. So there you go. For all of you who become football coaches, that's the way to do it. Uh, From a guy who didn't succeed. Yes. <laughs> well, he figured it out later. Uh, Gene Deitch uh, died at the age of 95, and he was an animator. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's cartoonist uh, first, but an animator, and that's where I think he made most of his money. He was able to adapt his style um, to anyone else's style. So he, uh, he, for example, animated Mr. Magoo cartoons, even though it wasn't the way he really drew. Uh, he could do Mr. Magoo, and he worked on those. Um, and uh, he's known for Tom and Jerry. What, I, what struck me about this obituary 
is a couple of things. One is that he moved from uh, Los Angeles, where he grew up, to um, Prague. Prague. He ended up doing most of his work for the last uh, 20 or so years of his life. Maybe he was a beer drinker. Uh, no, what it is was he, he beer said... Beer is very cheap there. Yes. What he said, that where else can you come out of a studio, make a cup of coffee at your own stove, and look out at an old tower where a real alchemist used to work at turning base metals into gold? The truth is... Uh, <laughs> He met a woman in Prague who became his second wife. That's the real truth. But uh, but what also struck me about this was that uh, he was the guy who animated the Peel's beer commercials in the 1960s. Uh, those were two cartoon characters named Harry and Phil uh, who were voiced by two real characters called Bob and Ray. And I remember watching those as a kid. They were pretty funny commercials. They were offbeat and... Uh, and he, as he says here, the commercials were great and the beer was terrible, which is something to that. But uh, were, were Bob they Ray based was, on the Bob and Ray characters? They sounded and well, they didn't look like the Bob and Ray characters. No, but I mean that same kind of yeah, it was the same humor. kind of banter, the same kind yeah. of banter, same kind of stuff. But they didn't use Bob and Ray. And I remember as a kid, one night I said, "There are these two guys, uh, these Harry and Phil. They sound a lot, they look alike, they act like Bob and Ray, but they're called Harry and Phil." As an eight-year-old, this was a great mystery so to me. It was so confusing. But we're both huge Bob and Ray fans, so you know, and that's Bob Elliott and, and Ray Goulding. And what I tried to find was some clip to play of Bob and Ray that we could add, and you can't because it's like behavioral humor. It's, it doesn't right. it doesn't work in two minutes. It doesn't work in three minutes. There are these odd situations. These Two guys being fanciful characters, and it just kind of gets to you over trickles through over seven or eight or nine minutes. There's no way to do it. It's sort of subtle behavior. I don't even think it's that. What is it? Then? I think it's over time. I'm not sure. You, I'm not sure they're terribly funny the first time you hear them. Well, that could be true. You too. know, and you just sort of, uh, you know, get into the character. Yeah, but they're fantastic, and it's just you can't. They're not one-liners. Um, and and finally. Finally, I know you're interested in this because there's no baseball. So this is this is you know what? Here's an interesting thing. Yeah, Mother's Day is coming up. Oh yeah, Mother's but Day. But today seems like Father's Day because <laughs> you've got to talk about horse racing. Yeah, you had a legal story, basketball. You had football story, basketball, and now the Mets. The Mets. The Mets, because people miss the Mets. Well, look, one thing that occurred to me, I, I said to myself, you could relive the last year's baseball season. I wonder if you can just put into the internet, I did, this is what I did, May 1st, 2019 Mets, and guess what? It works. You get the box score of what they did that day, they, you know, the whole story of the you know game. What? You know what? I'm going to go do that. Right after I stick a needle in my eye, <laughs> oh, the next thing I'm well, going to do. But, but, but you say that, is but here, but here, start replaying but, old Mets games. So sure enough, I did that. And what happened on May first, uh, two thousand nineteen? Uh, the Mets played the Cincinnati Reds, and it's a perfect encapsulation. Well, number one of, of the Mets season. What? Number what, one. What? Your son turned thirty. Yeah. Okay. We're talking baseball, honey. <laughs> baseball. All right. So the Mets. Played a game against the Cincinnati uh, Reds. Uh, Jake DeGrom pitched for the Mets. And it, at that point in the season, I'm going to remind you. you Are you going to play by play? You probably don't remember this. He was having a very unsuccessful beginning of the season. He was 0-3 with a 10.0 ERA. Is this because he had cut his hair? And No, it's not because he cut his hair. But in any event, and he was going out in a very uncertain time, and he pitched seven scoreless innings for the Mets. And what happened was they lost in the ninth inning 
because Edwin Diaz, the high-priced reliever they had brought in by trade that they were so excited about, gave Blew up the save. Clave up a game-winning home run the ninth inning, as he had done just two days before. He did the same thing. And Mickey Calloway was quoted at the time saying, it's rare, I'm sure it's going to continue to be rare, but it's stunning. Well, as we all know, 2020 hindsight turned out not to be that rare. (laughs) (laughs) You mean Diaz blowing the same? Exactly. I mean, whether it continued to be stunning, I don't know, but I'll tell you this, Mickey Calloway got fired at the end of the year. And it was because it wasn't that rare. Edwin Diaz kept blowing game after game after game. I think the, the quote of the game was DeGrom, who had pitched poorly and on his, on his good outing said, it's definitely a relief. No one wants to go out there and stink. Uh, and unfortunately, it wasn't Diaz who said that because he actually stunk the whole season. So uh, very interesting going back to May 1st, 2019, the Mets. Fascinating. <laughs> a preview of things to come. All right. Uh, Happy birthday again to Zeke. Uh, And uh, we're going to start enjoying spring. Yeah. So this is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Apuhoff. Tamsin and Dan read the paper. We'll be back again. See ya.